This week, we have another full slate of games to look forward to. Luckily for us, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, has us covered with so many different ways to get in on the action. DraftKings Sportsbook is based right here in the U.S., not offshore, so you know your funds are safe and secure. Plus, they have new odds, boosts, and promotions on your favorite sports every day. With DraftKings Sportsbook, you can bet from wherever, whenever, you don't even have to leave your house. And for those where sports betting is not yet available, head to the DraftKings app and check out all of their daily fantasy contests. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SI when you sign up. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's code SI to get your sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WIT-IT. What's happening, everybody? This is the SI Gambling Podcast, presented, of course, by DraftKings and DraftKings Sportsbook. Ben Heisler flying solo today, normally with the fantasy exec and Frankie Tadeo, but we're doing things a little bit different today. I wanted to talk to Lloyd Danzig. He's the founder and CEO of Sharp Alpha Advisors. And if you go to si.com slash gambling right now, you will notice a, a different type of column, a different type of perspective when it comes to the future, not just of sports betting, uh, but of entertainment and of virtual reality and sort of how those worlds uh, intersect with each other. And, and Lloyd was kind enough to do a guest column for us here at SI Gambling, and I wanted to bring on his perspective to talk about this a little bit further. Also give you a chance to learn more about uh, the company that he started, uh, as well as sort of his journey into the sports betting space, because I, I find it to be fascinating. So before we get to Lloyd, just a quick reminder for those of you that are not a part of SI Fantasy Pro, uh, SI Fantasy Pro is part of the DFS and gambling experience over for Sports Illustrated. Uh, I actually saw a question come in that was asking about, you know, where, where are all the picks? You know, did you guys have picks for last night? And just to clarify that, you know, there is information that comes into our SI Fantasy Insiders with Frank Tadeo, with Casey Olson. Uh, all those information comes in on a regular basis, but it's not going to be for every game. And I think it would be disingenuous of us to just say we're going to have picks for every game. The information is released in real time to SI Fantasy Pro members when the information comes in. So if there's nothing for a game, then there's not going to be information. Again, it would be disingenuous for us to just say we have something when reality we don't. So again, I encourage all of you guys to go ahead and try out the SI Fantasy Pro membership. Uh, MLB games have gone about 18 games over 500 so far this year, uh, 10 games over 500 against the spread in the NFL. The information really has been terrific. And I encourage you guys, all of this is documented. And so go ahead, give Frankie a follow, give Casey a follow. Um, his UFC picks continue to remain at 71% against the spread. So a lot of really good information coming in. So let's talk to Lloyd Dancing. As I said, he's the founder and CEO of Sharp Alpha Advisors. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Lloyd Danzing, D-A-N-S-I-G, as well as at Sharp Advisors. So Lloyd, I appreciate you making the time for us today. How you doing, man? Appreciate it, Ben. Uh, just to clarify, last name is D-A-N-Z-I-G. Uh, if you want to give me the follow on Twitter, but I'm sure Google will figure out how to autocorrect that anyway. There aren't too many Lloyds running around out there. 
Did I say S? All right. Well, you said S. Listen, I, I wrote down Z, and I think for whatever <laughs> reason the S came in. Lloyd, D-A-N-Z as in zebra, I-G, Lloyd Danzing, is the name that you can follow. So before we take this deep dive into the metaverse and its sort of application into sports betting and the entertainment space, because uh, there's several questions in and of itself there, uh, tell me about how you found the sports betting space. I know it's not uncommon uh, for those that were involved in the financial background with the data analytics background to land uh, in daily fantasy and sports betting roles. But what sort of brought you from point A to point B? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I think I, like probably most people, have been, first of all, certainly a sports fan, sports better, fantasy player, way before I ever considered this to be a field that I might work in in, in any capacity. Uh, you know, I've been rooting on and playing sports my whole life. I think I played my first yeah, I played my first fantasy baseball season uh, in 2001 on Yahoo Fantasy Baseball. That was when they still charged $14.95 a month for Stat Tracker, and you literally <laughs> didn't know how your players performed until the next day, unless you paid $14.95 a month uh, for, for live scoring. And certainly things have, have come a long way since then. And I was always, you know, the, the guy within my group of friends that was organizing the Super Bowl box pools and the March Madness tournaments and getting people together for fantasy leagues and, and, and all of that. So I always had a bit of sort of an entrepreneurial bent and always had an interest in not just betting on sports, but kind of being a managerial type force who can get people together to enjoy betting on sports. Uh, but again, even with that, I don't think I ever considered it a, a real career path. Uh, like you said, I, I started you know, my career on, on Wall Street. I worked at BlackRock for a while. I was a fixed income trader. I pivoted a bit into the data science and machine learning space and was heading back to finance uh, in a world where those two things are combined. I thought I was going to live out the rest of my life as an algorithmic trader. Big hedge funds have trading desks where they use artificial intelligence to do all sorts of nifty things. I was in late stage interviews for a bunch of those when PASPA got overturned. And suddenly mm -hmm. people were looking for a very, very rare combination of skills that is pretty rare internationally, but especially rare immediately post PASPA in the U.S. And that was combined domain expertise in the business of sports betting, technology, specifically predictive analytics, and finance, fundraising, capital markets, and things like that. There are very few people, certainly were post-PASPA, who truly understood how the sports betting industry works on the back end, and far fewer who also understood the nuances of the technology uh, as well as, as the financing. Uh, and so I joined a, an algorithmic sports betting startup immediately post-PASPA to help them with their first two capital raises, and, and then went off on my own to found Sharp Alpha Advisors, which is what I, I do now, which is where I spend my time advising startups in the sports betting space, as well as venture capital funds and investors who are trying to make sense of all the investment opportunities. Okay, so you said you had a, a unique set of skills for this market. Tell me a little bit further about, based on your time um, as sort of an algorithmic day trader, how that necessarily fit into PAPSA being overturned? Because it was sort of the Wild West at that point, right? So so where did those skill sets come from and how did you know how to apply them from the very beginning? Yeah, so I, I think that for part of what your question drives at is that there is a massive just general lack of understanding about what people are even talking about when they say things like AI, machine learning, data science, 
even the word analytics is used all the time. And I would bet that in a lot of the conversations that's being used, there either is not a clear definition or, or an understanding. Um, the way that I would say it is this. Many industries have been and are continually being totally revolutionized by data-driven approaches that started with techniques like data mining and other hot terms and has given rise to machine learning and artificial intelligence and all these other buzzwords these days. The best way to think about that, let's start outside of sports betting for a second. Machine learning and all of these techniques are used really for pattern recognition and using patterns to make predictions. So for example, when you go on Netflix and they recommend things for you to watch, that is Netflix using AI or some form of predictive analytics to look at what you've watched in the past, right. what they've recommended you and which recommendations you've taken, maybe even what time of day it is, what day of the week, and using all of those factors to make a prediction as to, to serve you the right content. That is actually not that much different than the process by which, for example, odds and lines and spreads are made. There are very few people who actually originate their own odds and spreads. There's a lot of people in the sports betting industry who talk about how many people just copy other people's. But for the few that do, they do, just like Netflix does, they look at historical performances of the two teams and maybe specific players, and they use that to predict how those teams would play against each other tonight, maybe with some modifications for things like weather and injuries. And odds or a line are really just a different formulation of the probability that a given team wins or the likelihood that a team wins by a given margin. So people have been using analytical approaches for things in sports betting for a while. And what was clear to me and a few startups right after PASPA was overturned and, and certainly more now is that all of the things that a sports book does, making odds, looking at the incoming bets and then changing the odds, uh, processing payments, identifying which payments are fraudulent and likely to be part of money laundering transactions. Um, detecting irresponsible gaming, knowing when to cut someone off. These are all types of pattern recognition, and that is where predictive analytics thrives, and that is where machine learning is making the biggest difference. So really, it wasn't as much a knowledge that other people had as much as an understanding of how to apply certain topics to a new industry. All right. There, there's so much that I could just follow up on that, but I, I know we want to get into the metaverse topic, so we'll get to that just in one more question. But uh, without necessarily giving away the secret sauce, Lloyd, um, there's so many different predictive models that currently exist, whether it be someone just creating a spreadsheet on their own uh, to somebody that's doing it at a much higher, more advanced level to full companies with data built technologies that are all sort of going in all these different directions. How how does it stand out? Where's, where's sort of the differentiating factor? Uh, because there's so much competition in the industry and in the market right now. How do you get your model or your information to stand out. Yeah, so I think, I, I don't want to start with the word unfortunately here because that kind of poisons the well, but unfortunately the answer is not that sexy and cool here. And, and be, the reason is because people assume that data scientists or machine learning engineers must spend all of their time typing fancy computer code and writing crazy mathematical equations on chalkboards and whatever. And the reality is that you hear all these different stats, but most data scientists spend something like 80% of their time pulling data, cleansing data, getting the data in the right format. And it turns out that there are lots of powerful predictive models out there. And in fact, you don't even necessarily have to know how to build them to use them. There are all sorts of platforms that are kind of like 
predictive analytics as a service, you know, third party, uh, you know, turnkey ready to go. Right. What it often comes down to is not as much the model, but the data. Uh, not everyone necessarily has access to equal data. Most people can't afford a sport radar feed or a sport radar historical package. And so they go about building data sets themselves. And there are all these things, big and little, that you have to look out for. There are small things, you know, from one NBA season to another, a team might change the three-letter abbreviation that is technically used to designate their team. Maybe they have a team name change. Maybe they, they change cities. And so you have to know kind of how to go in and how to account for little errors like that. And that's why people spend tons of time just cleansing their data. You also might have various forms of bias uh, in, in your data. Just for example, I always think it's crazy when someone says something like, uh, you know, the this NFL team has performed such and such against the spread in the last 10 years in the playoffs. The last 10 years in the playoffs covers like a million different players and probably 12 different coaches right. and quarterbacks and all that. And so it's almost completely, you know, irrelevant. And so because, you know, usually when people do predictive analytics, the sample sizes that you use are massive. Sporting events tend to produce smaller sample sizes just because there's a finite number of games. And so part of my, a lot of my answer is part of what really differentiates people certainly is who has access to and can organize and structure the data in the most strategic way possible. All that said, there also is a level of statistical prowess and sort of data science nuance that seems to come either from just being born kind of with that gene or from doing a ton of data science work in competitions where you figure out, you know, this is just as much an art as a science. I need to massage certain data points in certain ways and, and, and get them. And then just finally, I would say, there's also a discipline element here. There are a lot of people who you could give the profit maximizing sports betting picks to every day and the amount that they should wager on it. And within a couple of days, just because of how emotional sports betting can be, right. they would be like doubling up because you got three in a right, correct? Three in a row, correct? And so there is also this just human element where the human is often the weakest link in the chain. Right. And that makes a lot of sense, especially from a personal standpoint. And again, I also think there's an advantage in the market at being able to decipher so much of the information and then make it relevant and allow sort of an explanatory process involved to helping sure that people that are taking the data know how to use it and how to process that information properly. So now I will say just to add before we yeah. go, you know, there, there are in the financial services world right now, there's a big emphasis. Historically, there have been two types of data that Wall Street banks use and trade on and use for research. One is called fundamental data. And that is, you know, the actual underlying quality of the company. And the other is called technical data, which has nothing to do with the company, but how the stock price has been moving. You know, for example, maybe every time the price goes up $1 four days in a row, it always goes up $1 the fifth day. That would be a technical path. A more recent type of data that they've been using is called alternative data. Alternative data is where, for example, you fly a drone over a shopping mall and count how many cars there are for how many minutes and use that to estimate how many people were in the mall. People are using all sorts of things for alternative data in financial services. They're looking at sentiment on Twitter, conversations on Reddit. And so some people might want to think, okay, what are the equivalents for sports betting? Uh, there's a fundamental analysis might be one that's kind of like, this is how this team performs over time. A technical analysis might be, this is what happens when this percentage of bets are on the spread. What would alternative data be? I spoke to someone recently who said they scan Twitter 
and look at NBA players' wives who seem to be indicating that there's unrest in the household, and then they bet on the under on that player's points player prop because they assume that they're fighting with their wife and are distracted. And that's probably more of a funny example than one that actually works, although maybe it does. But I would just say for people trying to figure out how to calculate an edge, there's probably some innovative things that we haven't really thought of before that haven't become normalized that just because of the age of social media, you know, offer other things just outside the box. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating world to be able to try and go down that wormhole for. So uh, it might have to be something that we bring you back on to discuss sort of these different further challenges and, and ways to be able to find these different unique trends. But let, let's get into your column today for SI Gambling. Sure. Uh, about what's known as the metaverse. And it's important to distinguish that the, the coined phrase uh, metaverse, and you talk about this in the piece, uh, and sort of the inspiration for this article came from uh, a Matthew Ball article, which was entitled The Metaverse, what it is, where to find it, who will build it, and Fortnite. So, you know, the, the article focuses on, on what the metaverse is and sort of its practical application into a wide variety of entertainment and interactive purposes. So, so tell us a little bit about what exactly the metaverse is and how you initially researched it and what first maybe struck you about it. Yeah, so just to clarify, the term metaverse was actually coined in a 1992 book by an author Neil Stevenson, yes. who wrote something well. similar to right, who wrote he wrote something similar to Ready Player One or kind of the Matrix, where people are strapped into some virtual reality and that's where they interact. The way I came across the concept, and it's relevant to sort of how the column came about and why there's a sports betting, uh, you know, slant. Uh, I was on a call with a startup that, that I am, that I advise uh, called Betcha, B-E-T-C-H-A. They're a, a player prop betting platform, essentially. And, and they were talking about how just on the future of their roadmap, when they consider the future of sports entertainment, they think a lot about this concept of the metaverse that people in the media and futurism and technology have all been talking about. And I was referred to a specific article by a venture capitalist and kind of forward-looking guy Matthew Ball, who published the article you just referenced, which we linked to in the column, which I think is an awesome Metaverse 101 kind of article. I do a bit of an intro and I'll do some here and also did it in the article, but he goes way more into all the details about what this Metaverse is and how it could come to be. I then built on that to take more of an approach of why I think sports betting and fantasy sports and all of these companies are going to have an, a critical role in sort of bringing it to life. But to, to, to talk about it, you know, the metaverse is a hypothesized concept, first of all. So anytime we talk about, you know, characteristics that the metaverse is expected to have, those expectations are just a consensus of futurists and technologists and sci-fi writers and people who are looking forward and kind of predicting what things might look like. So the idea for the metaverse is that in the future, somewhat as we are starting to do now with virtual reality and all sorts of other forms of entertainment, that the way we will interact, not just occasionally, but perhaps very frequently, is through a virtual simulated world. You could kind of imagine like a Fortnite universe, except instead of controlling a character with a controller on a screen, you have perhaps some sort of virtual reality apparatus. Right now, those would be virtual reality goggles, but in the future, that could be a Neuralink chip created by Elon Musk that just fits into your brain. And the idea is that however it is that you connect with this world, it is a Fortnite or Grand Theft Auto style open world populated by avatars. 
maybe those avatars look just like us. Maybe they look totally foreign. Uh, maybe there are certain restrictions, uh, sort of who knows. But the point is, this will be a world that is always, always running. It never turns off. It never resets. Whether you log on or off doesn't really change anything other than perhaps whether your avatar is present and can be interacted with by others. And what is expected to happen is that you and I and all of the people, all the 8 billion people in the world, could log on to the metaverse at the same time and interact just as we do in physical reality, except through avatars. And that means that there would be some way to track motions that we want to make. Right now, there are things called omnidirectional treadmills that are used for video gaming, which is a treadmill that goes in all directions. So you could run and a, a character in Call of Duty could also run, but you'll, you don't have to actually move out of your living room. And you combine that with something called a haptic bodysuit, which takes information from a game and gives you vibrations sort of in, in your body that you feel. You combine these things and, and you could imagine a world where people are interacting and playing games and socializing through avatars in this sort of digitized, simulated reality. So and the reason that people are, are, are bullish on it or think that it is going to come to fruition is because it offers a lot of very compelling advantages and sort of seems to be almost a natural extension of what is happening right now. Some people refer to it as like virtual reality 2.0. And so just to sort of describe some of the use cases or the types of things that we could do in the metaverse, you know, imagine you get home from work, uh, you sit down on your couch, you have your Neuralink chip in your brain, and you know that if you just close your eyes and think about the metaverse for three seconds, uh, you, that, that's how you log in, perhaps. Uh, and so you get home from work and you sit on your couch, you lay back, you log into the metaverse, and you have a bunch of options, just as if you were dropped in, in a Grand Theft Auto world. Uh, perhaps we find that it's fun to socialize with people via avatars more than the way we've been trying to during COVID. A lot of people have been struggling to have really intimate react interactions with their friends via Zoom and video chat and all that. I'll tell you, I gave a lecture recently in virtual reality where my screen was up at the front of a room and everyone had avatars and logged in with virtual reality goggles and could move around the room and the sound was louder if you were closer to the screen and oh, things wow. like that. And so whether it's for working or for socializing, you know, those are, are certainly things. And that also gives rise to almost a ton of other possibilities. You can imagine how much more immersive gaming experiences would be if you have an actual first person view and ability to shoot a gun and, 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 and run in Call of Duty or, or a game like that. And then finally, I think just on this note, you know, not only working and socializing, but, but watching sporting events. You know, perhaps you want to watch a game as if you're sitting at center court or underneath center court uh, or on top of the rim or any other place that, you know, some cameras are placed with, with, with new types of sensors and technologies. And so, again, the idea, people are still trying to figure out exactly what we'll do first and what types of companies might build to this. But more and more people are talking about this concept of the metaverse this digital shared virtual reality where we can interact and do almost anything we can in physical reality and that also spans and links to our world right now. So before I pause for a second, I think it's important to remember that these won't be separate worlds in many people's minds. You in theory should be able to walk with your avatar in the metaverse into a virtual shopping mall, try on virtual clothing that only fits if it fits your real physical reality proportions, and then with one button or one thought, 
have that clothing delivered to your actual physical address in real life. So I know I just said a ton and I haven't really even gotten into the sports betting part of this, but that, let me pause there, is a primer or a quick overview on what people are thinking sort of the next generation of entertainment and experiences might look like. Well, let's have that further conversation about how sports betting fits in, because as you mentioned, the actual gaming experience and the viewing experience makes a ton of sense. The ability that those worlds can sort of intersect together. Um, but as far as sports betting, I, I think what a lot of people enjoy about it is sort of that community experience. And I think sometimes even with a, a sort of a virtual reality and a metaverse type of description that you've sort of proposed, d does it maybe take away from your ability to have that community aspect or does it actually open it up even more to different possibilities? So. So maybe it makes more sense just to discuss, or at least to discuss how sports betting fits in within the course of the metaverse and, and sort of whether or not that community experience can still be a part of it. Yeah, so I think this is, first of all, a fascinating question, not just about sports betting, and it's almost you know more deep and, and philosophical than anything else, which is, would it be possible if you grew up only interacting with your friends with virtual reality goggles on, would you have just as much fun as you did growing up with your childhood and, and meeting your friends the way you did. I don't know what the answer to that is. Certainly, as you're describing, there are people who what they're trying to do is allow you and your friends to put VR goggles on, feel like you're in a, a suite at you know a, a given football stadium, watching the game together, betting on the game together. And when you look to the left, your friend's avatar is there, even though you're sitting on the couch. Uh, that I think could be a very fascinating discussion. And we could, and there are people in the VR space that are, are really bullish on this. There are people who are doing virtual reality conferences and meeting rooms and, and things like that. But that's not exactly so much what I'm trying to point out when I say that I think sports betting and a broader category that I call competitive entertainment will maybe not be a major activity in the metaverse, although it could be. But what I'm talking about here is what industries and verticals are going to play a role in bringing the metaverse to life. So first of all, what I define as competitive entertainment are any of these things where a big chunk of the value that we derive is non-economic. It's based on the rivalry and competition and bragging rights and adrenaline rush that you get from having skin in the game and having skin in the game in a social context. So obviously that's betting on sports and fantasy sports, but also esports and competitive video gaming, connected fitness, uh, Peloton races, things right. like that iGaming, casino, and who knows what, you know, technology evolves faster and faster every day. You know, uh, drone, I, I talked to someone yesterday who was building a brain controlled drone racing league where you have a drone that you control by thinking of it going forward and you race that against other people. So whatever the next generation of these competitive entertainment experiences are, they all kind of fit into the model. Sports betting is what I know best and what I think is a prime example. When you think about sports betting compared to other activities, what really stands out? Well, first of all, people have a an amount of trust for their bookmaker that they don't necessarily for other online outlets. And that's shown by the fact that they give them their social security uh, information, personally identifiable information, credit card information, trust them with payments, withdrawals, things like that. Sports betting itself is a very high lift activity. Uh, it takes a lot to actually initiate a bet, you know, compared to other things that you can do online. You could probably sign up to 
put in a fantasy lineup just with an email address. But you can't actually place a bet unless you do way more stuff than that. And so just generally, people who are sports bettors have already signed up and indicated different preferences and banking choices and things like that. On top of that, sports betting is this really interesting thing because as much as it drives revenue directly, it drives even more revenue indirectly because of the engagement that it adds. There's a million statistics out there we could talk about, about additional minutes watched by sports bettors or additional incremental likelihood that a sports better has to watch a game if they've bet on it and, and, and things like that. And so for those reasons, you know, in addition, I think, to the fact that people who are gamers, people who have PlayStations at their houses, these are, you know, PlayStations are some of the most powerful graphical processors in the world. Uh, the Air Force actually created a supercomputer out of a cluster of 1700 PlayStation 3s uh, in, I think, about 10 years ago, uh, which, which just shows that, you know, even the military considers gaming consoles to be pretty powerful processing engines. Right. So you put all those things together. You, you think about, uh, you know, sports betting. It's high lift. It's highly engaging. It requires trust between the user and the operator. There are decisions that are highly determined by peer groups. Uh, you, you know, uh, Xbox users can't play Madden against PlayStation users, things like that. And by the way, another fundamentally important thing is in order for the metaverse to really be a replacement or a substitute or an alternative to physical reality, it needs to have a fully functioning economy where people are totally comfortable paying money, exchanging value in completely digital, non-cash or even credit card-based formats. And people in the sports betting and gaming world seem to be generally early adopters on this front. People in the you know Fortnite and Candy Crush worlds are used to microtransactions for buying things in-game. People on sports betting platforms are used to wiring money and putting money in a wallet. Some are used to cryptocurrencies. And so you put all those things together, and when you're scanning the different industries and you're wondering who might have the chance to build part of the metaverse, or if the metaverse magically existed, what company would have the user base that it could most easily convert to metaverse users? That's a good way to think about it. If this metaverse magically came to fruition, who would be in the best position to capitalize off of it? Who would be in the best position to drive users there? And when you listen to DraftKings talk and you hear them talk about not just being the future of sports betting, but the future of betting on everything, and not just being a betting platform, but a platform that has a serious place in the future of sports entertainment, you start to realize, okay, there is a case to be made that people who already have your payment information, that already have your trust, that you already use for highly engaging activities, that you already are willing to sign up with and provide lots of personal information to, those might be companies that are best positioned to bring you into the metaverse, to provide an on-ramp to the metaverse, or to actually build products. And so you could see just for example, a situation where DraftKings merges with Peloton and lets people bet on Peloton races, except not the current version of Peloton, a Peloton bike where you have VR goggles or a Neuralink chip. And so when you look around, you actually think that you're in a room next to 50 other Peloton bikes as if it were a real spin class. And you had to deposit $10 worth of Bitcoin ahead of time. And the person who finishes the race first 
gets all of that money and you know whatever so that's how you could start to imagine these things all consolidating and integrating and again like i said at the beginning this is all hypothesized right now but the point i was trying to make with this column is that highly engaging high lift activities that are already sort of adjacent to this metaverse stuff seem very well poised to have a stake in it somehow when it does come to life. All right, before I let you go, because again, there's so much to be to be able to digest. And again, you can find this column from Lloyd available at si.com slash gambling. So in relation to everything that we're discussing within the context of the metaverse, and again, there's so much of this technology feels very far away, but in reality, it may not be. Um, but tell me a little bit more about sort of how you envision a lot of this ultimately playing out, whether it be over the next few years, several years, whether we're looking at this as sort of a 50 to 100 plus year type of, of industry as sports betting and the continuation, because we're, we're already seeing, you know, even just from, from a mobile platform, Lloyd, you know, you walk into a store and there's different ways for different stores and informations and companies um, to use geofencing to be able to get some of your information. So a lot of this kind of already exists in a very small level. But but what about sort of what the future looks like here? I, give me a general timetable on sort of when more of this can actually feel like this is actually closer rather than just uh, sort of an idea where you can slowly build concepts around it and behind it. Yeah, great question. So, so certainly we are not within five or 10 years of being able to have a fully functioning metaverse that can support every person in the world synchronously uh, and, and work in the ways that we're described. However, over the next five to 10 years, what I think you will expect to see in this realm is certainly lots of advances in virtual reality, cheaper virtual reality goggles, lightweight virtual reality goggles, high fidelity virtual reality goggles that more and more are, are, are difficult to distinguish between what you're seeing with the goggles on and, and what you see with them off. I think in the sports industry in general, particularly post-COVID, we will see an acceleration of sports as a vehicle for social connection. So in the current form, that's going to just mean more platforms for you to join a watch party with other people who are betting on the same thing as you are or watching the same game as you are. And you could see if you want to combine those first two thoughts, maybe a stepping stone that, again, I think is still at least a couple years away, a stepping stone between what we're talking about and the metaverse as relates to sports would be, like I said, uh, a virtual reality platform where you and all of your friends can pop on virtual reality goggles and feel like you're sitting in the same seats together at your favorite team's uh, stadium or arena and watch those games. I, I think that would be a sort of natural extension that could happen in the next couple of years. I, I know at least one or two companies that are working on avatar technology and virtual reality technology uh, for sporting events and things like that. Um, but in terms of actually reaching uh, something like this, first of all, we need way more powerful computers to be readily available in order to have, I mean, if you think about, if you play Grand Theft Auto, it takes a long time to load between missions and screens because they have so much, so many graphics and so many pieces of information that need to be loaded. Uh, creating a Ready Player One type universe that, that is actually synchronous and ubiquitous and never ending and always running, that is pretty far outside of our current computational abilities. Um, I would also say that the hardware and software that people would need to 
log into the metaverse is currently way too expensive to actually get into the hands of billions of people. Right. I was going to say but, it doesn't necessarily fit for sort of an entire demographic of people. It's just very small, different levels. And ultimately, as the technology becomes more widely available, yeah, more so can I think participate. That's, that's exactly right. And so I, I mentioned that I had done this experimental lecture on artificial intelligence in a virtual reality. There are already some sports betting conferences that in lieu of in-person meetings, are having virtual conferences and there's a networking part of those conferences where you can use the arrows on your keyboard to move a little avatar around a room and interact with other people's avatars who want to network. Huh. So certainly I think what you'll see is most things follow a path of least resistance and big changes happen from a lot of small changes happening sort of next to each other. I think absolutely what we'll start to see is especially in developed worlds where you know consumer technology is a luxury good that people enjoy uh and sort of you know these experiences for early adopters are, are almost status symbols like a virgin galactic flight or, or whatever it is uh certainly you'll start to see more and more stuff happen in virtual reality uh, i don't know if you've seen ads uh i think for twenty thousand dollars you can buy what looks like a phone booth for your home or office and if you sit in it a 3D 360 degree scanner scans your whole body and projects a hologram like from Star Wars into a conference room somewhere else. Your whole body, seriously, straight out of Star Wars. And $20,000 certainly is an amount that most people cannot afford in their yeah, own home. Have to take out but a loan. It these, sounds fun. Right. The, the way these things happen is that some, you know, Someone comes out with a high-end version, Richard Branson buys one because he can afford it and it's a cool toy, and then eventually competitors come into the market and it gets cheaper. That happens with everything. So I think very clearly, the especially accelerated by COVID, the next steps are to have everyone getting more comfortable with all of these types of remote virtual forms of engagement and entertainment and experience. And whatever communities seem most amenable uh, or at least or, or, or most profitable in which to deploy technologies like this, those will probably be breeding grounds for the next step of even more immersive experiences. And just to, to add to sort of the step-by-step -step nature of this, you could imagine that right now, if you want to play a fully immersive version of Call of Duty, that you can hold a gun in your hand and have a vest uh, that vibrates uh, when you get shot. But maybe a next generation piece of hardware would be a full bodysuit that doesn't just arbitrarily vibrate, but actually recreates millimeter by millimeter the types of feelings that your character in the game would have at every point along their body. And you could just imagine you take any single aspect of this, the visual, uh, how you log on, how everyone else logs on, the types of activities, how high fidelity the visuals are, how low latency the experience is it's all going to likely be sort of small advances. Uh, and in the early adopter communities where people are already starting to try this stuff out, I think you'll see more and more moving toward something resembling the metaverse. And by the way, I mentioned at the beginning, all of these characteristics and you know activities for the metaverse are just hypothesized because no one knows truly who will build the metaverse and how it will come uh, to fruition. Uh, I think that part of some of this process, the, the iterative process of people getting more acclimated to virtual experiences, will provide feedback that hones everybody's collective definition. We'll see, oh, okay, that one thing we thought would be part of the metaverse, actually people aren't interested in that. But that other thing we weren't thinking of, oh, maybe that will be a really common activity.
And so I think it's it's going to be an, an iterative process and, and a really interesting one where it's not certainly not just sports and gaming companies, the Amazons of the world that also, you know, are trusted uh, payment processors, the social media companies of the world. They are also going to be vying for this. Uh, but, but I think companies in the competitive entertainment space will have an interesting uh, disposition, if not actual position in this metaverse, you know, business landscape. The article is Sports Betting, Competitive Entertainment, and the Metaverse. What happens when the world of sports betting, entertainment, and virtual reality become one completely immersive experience? The author of this article, Lloyd Danzing, kind enough to join us here on the SI Gambling Podcast. And you can read that very article right here at si.com slash gambling. Lloyd, this has been an incredibly eye-opening conversation. Sometimes we we sort of get into our own worlds a little bit when it comes to fantasy and, and sports betting here at SI, but uh, to be able to see things from an entirely different perspective uh, and just sort of use a creative, imaginative feel to think about what the future might look like uh, was certainly fascinating. So I appreciate your time. Before we go, uh, can you tell our, little, our listeners a little bit more about where they can find you, where they can uh, maybe interact and, and possibly even start up a conversation with you? Yeah, absolutely. So so Twitter is, is definitely a place where, where people find me and, and DM me about a whole range of things related to sports betting and fantasy sports at Lloyd Danzig, L-L-O-Y-D-D-A-N-Z-I-G is, is where you'd find me there. Uh, if you just Google my name or even Lloyd Sports Betting, uh, most of my stuff comes up and, and I have a personal website, LloydDanzig.com, where you can find all of my different articles and podcasts I've been on and things like that. But Twitter and LinkedIn are, are probably two of the best places. And, and I'm always chatting with people, always happy to talk about it and talk with anyone who's passionate about the space. Lloyd, I appreciate you making time for us today, both on the podcast, as well as your time in creating the article. Continued success in everything that you guys are building over at Sharp Alpha Advisors, and uh, look forward to doing this again soon. Thanks a lot, Ben. Talk soon.